Welcome to the Unearthed Man Podcast, the journey of becoming a conscious man, hosted by Milva. Hey all, Milva here, and welcome to episode 43 of the Unearthed Man Podcast. To kick off, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we work and gather, and their continuing connection to land and waters. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I pay tribute to the diversity of First Nations peoples of Australia and their ongoing culture. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then welcome aboard. If you're one of my regular listeners, then welcome back. I really appreciate your ongoing support. So if you are looking to know more about The Unearthed Man, then you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Hey, so uh, how much fun last week was the chat with uh, Drew? Uh, what an amazing journey he's been on. As I mentioned last week, I have a lot of deep gratitude for Drew, and not only what he did for Talia, however, what he's doing on a daily basis for those who've lost their way and turned to drugs and alcohol as an escape mechanism. If you're struggling to find a pathway out there, then take up Drew's offer for a chat. It'll definitely change your life. I'm so happy that I – sorry about that. I'm going to stay again. I'm so happy I've got, I get the chance to have this chat today with my guest. Uh, we both lost someone who meant a lot to us in 2019. However, it was through his death that we had the opportunity to reconnect. My guest reconnected with his dad as a teen after 10 years of no contact and then maintained a relationship for the next 13 years before he passed. He quit uni twice before walk, working on boats as a deckhand, firstly prawn trawlers, then pearl farming for six years. For a period of 10 years, he lived out of a backpack just working and traveling. During that time, he was basically a fully functioning alcoholic that experimented with a lot of other drugs, mainly party drugs, but also some psychedelics. He stopped drinking at the age of 30 due to his dad's death. His dad and my uncle died from organ failure after living a very colourful life that had a heavy reliance on alcohol, not much dissimilar to that of his mother and father. My guest has now been sober for a bit over two years, during which he completed a diploma of mental health. He lives with an older Indigenous lady from the... We're a jury nation whom he met through studying. He has a genuine interest in helping people heal and hearing their unique life stories. He feels that he has recovered and overcome his addictions and no longer represses his emotions. Sobriety was the thing that put him in the right state of being. Has had a positive ripple effect on everyone around him and has been worthy every minute. And sorry, it has been worth every minute. Welcome to the Unearthed Man podcast, Thomas Goonham. Hey, Tom, how are you, mate? Thanks, dude. Yeah, no, I'm good. Happy, healthy, well, especially um, compared to a lot of people right now. So, yeah, yeah. can't complain. No, no, beautiful to hear. So just um, so as, as I alluded to, um, Tom, Tom's my cousin. Uh, Tom's my first cousin on my mother's side. So um, my Uncle Pat um, was Tom's dad. Uh, I had a very special relationship uh, with, with Pat. Um, over many, many years, I felt that he and I, uh, out of a, probably all the family, connected really closely. We had a good understanding of how we, we operated. Um, I didn't get much of a chance to uh, get to know Tom um, because, as I alluded to, Pat had a very colourful uh, life. Um, and uh, so Pat had sort of uh, you know, had uh, the twins, of which Tom, Tom and um, Bridie, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is his sister. So twins and then um, he's, you know, some other siblings as well. Um, but yeah, Pat was known to have uh, sort of disappeared and, you know, sort of probably had a fractious relationship with Tom's mum, which sort of caused some tension as well. So it was great that Tom had a chance to reconnect uh, back with Pat for, for that period of time. Um, it, was just and, un- it was just under um, 
not the best circumstance, you could say. Yeah, yeah, and I think like, you know, I'd, I'd love to go and explore a little bit of that, uh, Tom, because that sort of probably calls into you know some of the challenges that's led to you, you know, being off doing all the, uh, you know, the the prawn, yeah, well, prawn a, trawling and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, let's let's have a chat about it. All well, that. yeah, but well, on a personal note, like with us reconnecting, I think that was like um, by far the best part about like what happened with that, and you know, the whole hospital process would have been a lot harder for me um to come to terms with i think if you guys weren't there so Mm. even though we're separated by you know geography and a lot of time like a lot of years of not talking that was just the best part about it having that support network that i sort of forgot that i had almost Mm. yeah yeah because I, i think yeah to put that in context for everyone else um we knew that uh, Pat was dying, um, and so we all flew into Queensland. Um, yeah, and, and and Tom Tom was there for a period of time. Um, so it was myself and and uh, you know my mum and my aunties and all that sort of thing. So you know we had it was really nice because we actually had that chance to um, share the experience and, and a very sad experience, but you know a shared experience and and you know something we had there and yeah, uh, having that family support was immense. I, I know it definitely helped me. From a, from a healing point of view, um, but I think what really helped me too was to hear your story, Tom, about you know one, you know, to find out where you come from and the challenges you'd had. But pretty much when we're up there, you said that's it, I'm off the grog, like that's it, you know, I'm stopping now. And I know that that was challenging for you because you know, your life was a bit about you yeah, know, exactly, man. Just, I was just go and disappear for a week and just have so, to get written off. Exactly. I was in Bali hungover when John, my uncle, he just told me through Facebook Messenger, like, look, if you want to see your dad, he's gone palliative. So for me to get from being hungover in Bali to the Sunshine Coast to see him, it was like two red-eye flights. Mm. So like by the time I saw him in bed, I hadn't even slept. And it was nothing that that I would have planned, but yeah, took one look at him in bed, and somehow for the first time in my life, I just saw the world with perfect clarity, and I just knew exactly what I needed to do, and that was to give up the drug. So it was really profound, but yeah, maybe one of the best decisions I've ever made for sure. Yeah, no, that that and, and I can um I can remember that because yeah, Tom literally came in. Um, I think he'd been over thirty six hours of that sleep. Um, you know, he, he came to the hospital because I know we ended up dropping him off at the hostel that that night that he'd found to at least go and get get some sleep. Um, but yeah, the the I think one of the interesting challenges for anybody, and I think it's the hardest thing. That a lot of people go through, and and part of this, you know, people need to look, we need to understand how to to go about processing this. But standing in front of a, a man that you know um, that I know I deeply loved, and actually physically saying goodbye to him, knowing that when you walked out the door that you would never talk to that person again, and that person knowing that they would never see you again either because they knew they only had days to live, is is one of the toughest experiences. But if ever you want, as you said, such a profound experience into why we need to live life and why we need to, you know, just um, become ourselves and do everything that we need to do for ourselves, you know, um, facing take, death. Take care of yourself. And yeah. 
and to understand that um, being healthy is the best way to be. It doesn't mean that you have to be abstinent. I don't, now that I'm sober, I don't walk around telling people to not take drugs because I've been there, I've done that. You know, I devoted about 12 years of my life to doing that solely almost other than, yeah, working and studying and doing all that. So I'm not going to sit on a pedestal and and try and tell everyone to be like me because it's given me that understanding of everybody in return. Mm. Like sobriety gives you that mental clarity or the wisdom and hindsight to backtrack the things that are happening in your life to determine like who you are now. And I'm glad all of that happened. Like, not that I'm glad, you know, what happened to dad happened. Cause obviously we all still want him around and he sort of passed away a bit prematurely, but maybe he saved my life in return. There's uh, a, a, and I feel there's a lot in just that statement, Tom. Absolutely. It's, um, Often, often some of these lessons do come through to us about, you know, um, sometimes, you know, someone has to give a life to save a life. And maybe mm. that was the message. Maybe that's that, that what had, had taken place um, at that yeah. point in time. And, and, and back on your, your point too is that one thing we have to remember is sobriety should not lead to superiority. Yeah. Um, you know, so like I've been sober for 19 years, but that doesn't make me the, the angel to walk around and look at, condemn everybody who's having an alcoholic drink. It's like that you're not superior to anybody. You've just making the choice mm. as to what beverage you choose to now put into and as to whether you're using that as escapism or whether you're actually now starting to learn to feel your emotions and, and allow them to come through you and actually, you know, uh, be present with them as opposed to finding a mechanism to escape off to. Yeah, but if you're if you're a heavy drinker, like like how I was or how how dad was like I think that's something that I got from him that he was a heavy drinker but a heavy thinker as well so when you're an overthinker like having the ability to sort of turn your brain off or to go numb a little bit that's enticing for a lot of people I think with alcohol the fact that it's a depressant drug hmm so, so let's talk about the the overthinking part. Like, let's let's talk about what that looked like for you. I mean, yeah, yes, you're right. Your dad was definitely, you know, um, he was actually extremely intelligent man. I think he got um, underestimated for his level of intelligence. Um, but yeah, absolutely, there's a lot of intelligence that he had. But let's talk to the overthinking element. What was that? What did that look like for you in your life? Um, just I don't know. Just really severe anxiety about everything um like con- creating these conspiracy theories in my head about things that are could happen that that don't happen not as in like you know aliens and all of those mm. conspiracy theories but literally like just driving to somebody's house to you know to go to a party or whatever like even hanging around people that I didn't know would just get me super nervous for no reason. Yep. But I'm happy to to talk to people in general and to hold a conversation. But, yeah, just thinking about, literally just thinking about everything way too much for just no reason and heaps of sleepless nights, worrying about 
other people when they don't know that I'm worrying about them, getting too involved maybe in pe- people's personal lives, trying to walk around and save everyone all the time at the expense of maybe my own mental health. Mm. Okay, so, so yeah, just on that point. So I think that's a really – I think you're touching on a few things in there, Tom, which is about often – people just don't know or understand or haven't picked up on the fact that, you know, that these are just all things going on in your own mind. Like these, these, and a lot of these things may not actually be reality, but there's just, that's the yourself reality that's being created that about a situation and that, that reality then, you know, cascades into another new reality and another new mm. reality. And, but it's all within you, like no one else has visibility or is no. aware of that. That's, that is what's taking place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, even just little things that are completely trivial, like thinking about what conversations could happen between people or like, um, yeah, just like if I was in Bali worrying about ways to access money, like I would have cash, I would have two travel cards and my normal bank card. Like right. even though I was a full-on piss head, I'd still have like four different ways to access money. Right, <laughs> like stuff like that 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 maybe people wouldn't think or worry about, and always, even when I was drinking heaps, still wanted to be really precisely punctual. <laughs> <laughs> it did like somebody says to rock up to their house at eight o'clock for pre-drinks, and I'd be there at seven forty-five. It's one of the things that 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 Dad told me. He said like, um, like if you ever if you're ever on time, you're late. So in other words, just always be early and then you're on time. <laughs> but I, I I can understand that, right? You know, I, I sit down at the desk, do the podcast 15 minutes before we start actually doing recording. And then I find myself sitting there thinking about what am I going to do for the next 10 minutes? Because literally it takes like two minutes to get ready. But I, like, yeah. I, I'm the same thing. I go, well, what if my guest dials in earlier? And what about this? And so... I get that, but I'm also a person exactly right. I'd prefer to get to a place 10 minutes before and sit outside for five minutes before I actually go and knock on the door as yeah. opposed to turning up five minutes late. Now, probably, not, probably people don't really care if you're five minutes late, to be honest. Like, it's it's just this whole uh, persona and image about what are they going to think about me if I keep turning yeah, up late? Am I going to be the late person? It's your personality, but you essentially are doing it for other people on this. Mm. But you don't want them to worry about you. Or have they had a car accident? You know, are they lost? All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. Um, I want to take a step back, Tom. So I, you know, as I said, we alluded to earlier on. So can we talk through what growing up sort of looked like you, uh, looked like for you? Because that obviously the, the growing up element resulted in, you doing, you know, out in the fishing and out in the trawling, you know, and out in the pearl farm, but also heavy drinking. But there was obviously challenges in growing up that probably, you know, led to to that lifestyle sort of kicking in. So yeah, I think there were, it was a lot of confusion about why dad wasn't around. Because when you're a kid, you don't you have no understanding about addiction. You don't know mm. what an alcoholic is. Um. It's almost as if he had the predicament to sort of give up drinking or, you know, choose between the bottle and his kids. 
which is a fair but also unfair predicament for most people to choose between. But it sounds to me like my understanding is that's kind of what happened. Like it got to the point where his drinking was so severe that mum didn't feel comfortable dropping us off to his joint on a weekend. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a couple of times where she rocked up, you know, to drop us off and he wasn't there um, or he was going to be five or ten minutes late. And back then there was no mobile phones. Yep. So mum would just be, you know, out the front waiting, you know, kids in the car, her old Kingswood. Um, and the last time she tried to drop him off, that's basically what happened. She just took off and I think finally just got sick of his shit. Yeah. And yeah, just so then he just wasn't around. It wasn't, there was no um, birthday cards with money in the mail. There was no ringing in. It was literally just a really abrupt stop and then just no contact until I was in my later teens and driving around and, you know, had a car. So maybe I was like, yeah, from age eight to 17, 18 was just, I just didn't know him. I mean, we both recognized each other because we still lived um, in Marichidor. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd bumped into him a few times, but I think I had a lot of resentment towards him back then that I could have even like cheekily just flipped him off or something if he tried talking to me. Yeah. But um, that, yeah, that, that was it. Like mum didn't manifest any hate. She didn't try and manipulate us into not liking him or anything. It was just, just, yeah, just he was gone and then just that was it. We heard what he was up to and he knew what we were up to and stuff just through um, mutual family friends. But um, in regards to physically seeing him or talking to him, it just didn't happen. So, so what? So, what did that impact have that on you? Like, from uh, you know, how did that sort of then make you feel, or how did that start to show up for you in you know in your life in, in just having this father figure that was there, and then all of a sudden, you know, whether he was a perfect father figure or not, you know, aside, but he was there, and then just not. Like, how does that? Because they're the formative years, right? Eight through to seventeen, right? This is the yeah. The I don't know what it did to me, like father figure, like developmentally or emotionally. It's just like by the time I was a teenager, I was just used to it. Yeah, I wasn't like hanging out with mates and have their dad around and going, oh, you know, I wish I wish my dad was was still around because I think I just had the feeling that maybe we'd reconnect one day, but I wasn't I wasn't stressed about it. I think I was just trying to focus on um, finishing school because yep. two older sisters, mum and dad, never graduated and mum was sort of pushing that. So I don't know, when you're a teenager, I think that you're just so busy and, you know, you're so hormonal and <laughs> you're not really thinking about who is or isn't around or alternatively, maybe I just repressed it all. I don't know. Maybe mm. I just chose to try and forget that I even had a biological father. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to remember like what your thoughts were yep. as a teenager. But yeah, talk, like reconnecting to him the first handful of times that I rocked up at his apartment, we were both nervous and it was awkward. Mm. Um, and then 
definitely after like a couple years of texting and, you know, just spontaneously rocking up to his um, was, was fine. And we lived up the road from each other. So I'd see him like a few times a week. Okay. Um, and then obviously meeting at the pub a lot, unfortunately. But I sort of felt like he, uh, especially in my 20s, because a lot of his mates had never even met me personally. And I know that he was always proud of me, that he was sort of like showing me off a little bit. Yeah, pub. yeah, yep, yep. And um, yeah, even with like the tattoos and that, like he always made sure that he showed people how many tattoos I had, <laughs> just little things like that. But yeah, it's hard to tell, you know, what my thought processes were as a teen. Mm. I don't really remember, but I don't think it was resentment or that I was too concerned about having an absent father. And he was just sort of leading his own life, um, yeah. which was full of, you know, like, yeah, he was bipolar as fuck and chronically depressed and that correlated with, you know, the diagnosis of medical depression and, you know, we, we both know that mental health and addiction sort of correlate a fair yeah. bit. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just... I don't know. He just he just wasn't around. So mum like my mum's one of my heroes. She's a friggin' she's a legend and um if it wasn't for her, who knows, you know, what would have happened yep. to us as kids. But she did everything that she could to to help us and she did a bloody good job and yeah, I made the decision like once I guess I was a young adult slash Becoming a man, just wanted to suss out who he was again. Yep, yep. No, I, I can see that. Um, just as a question, mate, I don't know whether it's your microphone rubbing against you, you got a bit of stubble there. It just there's a bit of crackle every now and then when you're you're moving around. So yeah, just maybe the stay still. Yeah, yeah, that's not too bad. I mean, it's, it's just something you pick up. You can just move the microwave microphone a little bit away from the stubble. Then we're good to go. Okay. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. No, look, I, I can I can understand that, and and I think you know that's what we see, uh, you know, a lot where you know the fathers disappear, that the mums become you know that that beautiful role model, and that yeah they become you know they're just solid as a rock, and they're the ones that we you know become fully de- you know reliant on, but they stand up, you know, and they just purely stand up and go you know, and and females around the world have done that for years and years. I mean, I would say at the moment we are lacking male leadership in what's taking place in the world today. You know, it's the women that are actually even starting to stand up, you know, spiritually, physically, emotionally, like they're the ones that are actually really leading where yeah. we're at now about what's right. going on. You know, with yeah. this, we've got this whole, the thing that I'm observing, you know, and, and I want to get back into to your story, but the thing I'm observing globally is we've just got a lot of boys out there who, who just feel like they're, they're not standing up in their true, you know, male essence and going, no, no, like we're going to start to lead from a, from a true, from a true, uh, point from our heart and from a true level whereas all the females are going this is fucked like come on folks when are you going to stand up and start to lead us here like we want we, you know we don't want to be the ones that are actually you know leading the show we want to be here to, you know we want to be here you know in doing all the creativity and all the flow and all our feminine energy because that's what we need in the world today we don't you know we don't want to be doing your job as well mm, and yeah. uh, you know and, and i think you know that you know, I've seen that uh, over a period of time, you know, where we, I think 
in my view, we've got a whole lot of uh, young men coming up as people pleasers and, you know, have never had really that strong male direction in their life. And I'm not mm. saying that's not for you because you've got that from your mum. Like I can see how you're operating. Like, you know, you, you're pretty now, like, you know what you are, you know what you're going, you know what you're doing. You, you know, you're really focused on helping others in their, you know, mental health journeys and everything else, which is a beautiful spot to be in. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, talking about masculine and feminine, I think that a lot of blokes are getting in touch with their feminine side now. And, mm. you know, it accords with nature, even through, um, you know, astronomy and ge- geometry and everything. You need masculine and feminine properties everywhere. Yep. So I like doing blokey things, but I also grew up with a twin sister friggin' playing Barbie dolls and shit like that. And, you know, grew up in a household of, you know, I was raised by women essentially. Um, mm. Cause you know, yeah, dad wasn't around for like, you know, a third of my life or whatever, but yeah, I think more blokes need to um, tap into that and even just like, yeah, living with, um, living with an old bloody Wiradjuri woman, um yeah it helps get in touch with your feminine side and yeah or even like on the topic of first nations people hearing her talk about like in her nation the different gender roles you know Mm. like men and women's business like people are trying to like force gender roles to make us more egalitarian but there was other civilizations before that were way more in tune with that than us yeah like yeah look at all the different cultures we had here that specifically had men and women's business now we're we're molding the two which is having a good effect but also with like from a you look at women that are like juggling 60 hour working weeks and they've got two kids and they're a single parent and a professional at the same time like they're bloody psychos i'd tip my hat to them like yeah. uh, or even mum like raising us like I don't even know how she did it or there were times where like um social workers didn't believe that she was living off what she was living off financially mm. and admittedly yeah dad was I think maybe to get back at her more than us as kids but doing shit like working cash in hand so he didn't have to pay child support, so there was a bit of that going on. But yeah, yeah, my mum's a bloody weapon. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think yeah. most women are like all mothers yeah. are just literally psychos. I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, look, yeah, they they. Uh, I mean, if you just think through what a woman does just to birth a child, you know, men never have to go through that experience, and uh, mm. and I think you know that's. You know, when you look at, uh, as you're right, when you look back at uh, um, ancient cultures, you know, the ones we had in Australia and, and whether it be in Africa or in, you know, back in, you know, Mesoamerica and all these sorts of things, a lot of the initiation for the woman is actually a part of that having birth, like, because that's a massive ritual of being able to have a birth and what they go through and, and you know, and that's his connection to giving life, you know, mm. whereas the man, the men, unless they're going through some sort of ritual or some sort of movement of going from boy to man, they don't actually have that transformation. A lot of, a lot of situations. Um, and you're right. You know, I've been doing a lot of uh, reading and research into, 
you know, our own, you know, ancient cultures in Australia. Mm. And exactly that whole thing about men's business and women's business and, you know, how it operates, even to the point of where, you know, if multiple mobs got together, like at a corroboree or, or would come together, like there was designated where you would, where you'd set up your camp and, and then where when the men and women would be so that, you know, they would actually be able to interact together and everything else. Like this was a really a complex design, like really yeah. complex stuff. But without, without anybody missing out, there was no yeah, oppression. Exactly. Now, like, yeah, I mean, it's just more, society's just more complicated now. So it sucks that people get left behind, especially here on every friggin' metric that you can measure, basically. Mm. First Nations people are struggling by comparison. But, um, yeah, it's something that we can work on, you know. Hopefully they can get more allies. But I think it's just... It's more political, isn't it? It's more just not the general public. I feel like it's more just the government's just like pretty clear about the fact that they're happy for First Nations people to just be forgotten. Ah, could, could not agree more. Um, a couple of episodes ago, I had uh, Jack Bagala um, or Alec Willie Stanley Dumaji, um came on and he spoke into a lot of those elements and what had happened with him and you know, he's very active, um, certainly in the social media platforms, exactly about that. You know, yeah, the simple he's, thing is- <laughs> he's fucking hilarious. <laughs> I know, he is he's so heaven, funny, dude. Uh, yeah, I told um, my housemate about him um, being on your podcast. And, uh, yeah, I think we both follow him on Facebook. So, mm. yeah, I was super yeah. proud of you for having him on. I thought that was cool. Yeah, thanks, man. No, I appreciate that. No, and look, I, I, he's coming back on like we've been connecting on the side, but – just, just purely to him talking to the fact of, you know, having the stores in these remote towns that, you know, the Indigenous settlements are actually government-based stores and the prices are ridiculous. Yeah. And so you're giving out welfare to a group to live, but then the money goes back into a government-driven store. So they're making profits off the same people they're giving bugger all money to to actually live off and, yeah. and, then, and then dictating how they can live their life. It's like it's so – fucking politically driven and yeah it's, uh, and it's a it's yeah. a human it's a human rights issue they're mm. removing really basic human rights from people yeah and it's embarrassing it's sort of like i think like a fair few australians now are, are proud of our history minus like the colonial history mm. um that we are yeah super proud of the cultures that we had here and the fact that it's, you know, the oldest living cultures that we know that have stayed in one spot and, you know, it's like the the first everything, the first bloody astronomers, first bakers, you can go yeah. down the list. Yeah. And it's not really something that too many people have looked into and we don't get taught our true history at school. No, nah, no. Nah. I mean, you look at like, and he's like, yeah, there's river people and there's ocean people and there's like, you know, inland people and everything else. And just things around the sophistication in the damming of some rivers so that they would actually catch fish in a certain pond. Yeah, man. Yeah. But allow enough water to keep flowing down the river so that the mobs either side of them that lived, that were reliant on that water still had sufficient water and access yeah. to do what they had to do. Like, now, like a cattle farmer puts up a fucking dam and he and he, he dams all the water for himself, for his crops and all these sorts of things. I mean, it's just gone from this. We are completely looking after the land in totality, even though our mob resides in a you know in a smaller area. 
hmm. compared to you know the farming land that we're operating now, which is this is mine, this is mine, and you know the selfishness of it all. Um, it's it's craziness. Yeah. No, I read a stat the other day. I think it's like indigenous people of the world make up like four or five percent of the world's population, but they're still maintaining eighty percent of the world's land. But they're mm. doing it perfectly sustainably, as in still living in harmony with the land and not wiping out any species. And it's worth investigating the old ways, the ancient ways, and incorporating it into our especially farming practices and you know or like everyone saw the the bushfires yeah you know that we had last year it was if indigenous australians still had control of the land that never would have happened no not not at all not at all um and, and yeah no well it was people blame climate change which has definitely played some role in it but it was poor land management and poor climate policy that essentially did that. That's my understanding anyway. Like there's so much fuel on the ground because we don't know how to look after the land anymore. That that was just inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. Um, it's great that we've, we've, we've broken into that comp, that, that area. And, and, and I love that because, you know, I definitely have a passionate area and I know you do as well, which is great. Um, I want to, Double back a little bit more. So, what does you know, eighteen to thirty look like for you? You're on the road for ten years. You're out. You know, like I'm probably. I was very friggin' nomadic. I would say to the yep. point where, like, especially um, when I was working at the Kimberleys Pearl Farm for two and a half years, the majority of that time we didn't have access to internet or phone reception. So it was literally a case of on my week off to not have any flights booked or any plans, go to the pub. I used to tell people that I made the best decisions when I was drunk, which is very far from the truth. <laughs> but I'd go to the pub, rail as many drinks as I could in a few hours and then jump on and start looking at flights. Right. That's how, like, carefree I was. And I, I sort of miss that. I'm not carefree anymore. Like, if anything, with stuff like, overthinking and anxiety and that it's all been exaggerated thanks to sobriety but mm. back then i just, just think i didn't give a shit about anything i don't even think i really gave a shit about my job but right. i was like you know a full-time foreman there and then yeah so to be just bali like i've been to bali um 28 times um i did a big trip for europe thailand a couple times i literally just had this black nike sports bag just with clothes in it, phone, wallet, passport. And then I just would just go wherever. And obviously just vendoring the whole time. Right. But one thing I will say about Darwin is if you don't like hunting and fishing, essentially you just go to the pub or especially if you don't have a car and you can't drive, you know, for an hour and a half to go to, you know, national parks with waterfalls. Mm. get stuck in the city and you just will just drink for for days yeah. so you go to the pub as soon as you get into town and you're still in the same spot six days later <laughs> and spending hundreds of dollars a day yeah just at the pub 
and then uh, and then basically a day to attempt to somewhat sober up before heading back out to or sometimes the not again. sometimes yeah, right. not they used to be I used to call it the gauntlet flight from from Bali and leave Denpasar at one o'clock in the morning and it would arrive at five thirty in the morning in Darwin and then by the time you go through customs and all that I'd walk over to the Pearl Aviation part at the airport where we'd because we had a mallard seaplane that we would take off from. And you just wander over, just cooked as fuck, to start your two weeks of work. So there was never any rest because it was it's a physically demanding job. And then you would just annihilate yourself on your week off. So I was just run down, basically. But everyone thought I was ripping at life. You know, everyone... Because you can lead a good a good lifestyle when you've got a disposable income, like it was an okay paying job. And then, you know, in Australia, we don't acknowledge when person somebody is an alcoholic or not. Mm. You might just say that they just love a beer or, you know, everyone hates the, the A word, but, you know, I must have been. There were years out of my 20s where I wasn't sober. Yeah. So, if that's not an alcoholic, then like what is? <laughs> well, I, I think what people in Australia, there, there's two parts of it. There's this Australian pride, you know. So like if you look on, you know, levels of ego and everything else, like Australia has this pride. And one of the things we're proud about is our drinking culture, you know, mm. like come to Australia and have a beer, have a Foster's, have all these sorts of things, you know, come over here, be, you know, live this wild life in Australia, but while you're doing it, always have a drink with you. And, um, you know, so there's this, there's this piece that sort of takes place. And I think, and I think there's this egotistical pride that people want to attach to, but the challenge with that is that whenever someone puts a mirror up to Australia and go, you know, you, there's a lot of you just alcoholics, they go, no, 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 that's our culture. You know, mm. this is what we do. And, and it's more, most of the people who actually do that are the ones that are actually sitting in the pub drinking, you know, after work or, you know, on weekends doing the level of escapism um because yeah and we've we fully normalized it yeah but it is escapism how many times in australia have you heard somebody have a bad day at work and they go oh yeah can't wait for a tinny when i get home like we associate you know the stresses of life with i'm just gonna drink alcohol Mm. yeah yeah yeah, but, yeah. And, and then, like, even now when I, like, because I still will hang out with people when they're drinking, but, and I'm okay with it, and I've never seen anybody in Queensland drink as bad as, you know, me and the dudes that I used to work with before. So I'm completely non-judgmental with, you know, the state that people get themselves in. But what I found about giving up the grog was, I feel like sometimes people don't even want me around when they're drinking because mm. they know that I'll remember everything that they say and do, that I have complete control over everything, yeah, that I say and do, and then I can just drive home after. Mm. And once they get more and more sloppy, it's almost as if they don't want to talk to me. But the way I see it is that's like uh, it's almost as if that I'm just mirroring back to them and they don't want to they don't want to see it yeah 
Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Like I, I work in the corporate space and, and I you know don't drink either. And the amount of people go say, I don't know how you do your job without being able to drink. And I'm like, that's an interesting statement. <laughs> like if you if you feel that the only way you're surviving in this job is your ability to actually, uh, you know, to, to race off and actually have that drink, then, you know, hmm, that's a bit bizarre. Yeah. But like what I, what I found when I like got sober was I lit, I felt like that I went back in time a little bit almost that I started doing stuff from my childhood again, almost like yep. all of my old interests and hobbies that just evaporated um, for most of my twenties. Cause all what I wanted to do was go to the pub. I just started doing it again. Okay. And then like when, after dad passed away, like I went mental with um, running. Like I literally just went full Forrest Gump and I just <laughs> ran my problems away to the point where like I had to stop doing it because I was running like a half marathon every day. Right. Like I was spewing up all the time. Like I just literally just, just pounded the pavement just yeah. every day. But that, that was like the thing that saved me, I think, honestly, was – was getting back into running again and I go to the gym now and I've got a lot of, you know, coping mechanisms or self-care strategies. Some of them I learned last year through my study, but I think that cause I was, I was sober for five months before I signed up um, to do that TAFE diploma, yep. which was a huge risk, but I, I already felt like in those five months I got myself into the best health of my life. Yeah. Dead yeah. set. So I was fully prepared for what was going to happen. I was still nervous about studying again because I hadn't used my brain for so long. Because <laughs> being a deckhand is pretty monotonous. Um, yeah. There's a lot of problem solving. Like you still need to be intelligent to, to do it. Um, but, yeah. It, and then we touched on some pretty raw um, units stuff to do with aod and suicide and you know yeah um but yeah from a like a personal development thing that was the best thing that i could have done it was like the biggest risk but now i'm like holy shit like mental health was a cool thing to study and now like pretty much the only people that i know on the goldie are the people that i've studied with so that gave me like a support network that's healthy um well, everyone's a bit bloody out there. They're all <laughs> the lo- the eccentrics and the lost and forgotten and black sheep, and they're all weird as fuck. But um, <laughs> we've all gelled through that. And the bitter irony of starting a deployment of mental health through a mental health pandemic, dude. Think about that. <laughs> Everyone around you, their lives are just turning to absolute shit. And I'm trying to deal with, sobriety and try to be normal again too i entered Mm. back into society again and having friends and family around and and i had no escape whereas before i could just jump on a flight and just burst because i always felt like whenever it's just me and my problems everything in the universe is all good Mm -hmm. but as soon as i start thinking about other people friends and family that's what gets me down more than anything. Okay. So when you say gets you down, what, what does that actually mean? Is that's when the overthinking starts to kick in or is that? Yeah, I just feel it so much more than 
if something bad happens to me. Like yeah. if everything if everything that I have right now just burnt in a house fire, the th- first thing I'm going to do is piss myself laughing. Like I don't <laughs> even think I'd give a shit. But if that happened to somebody in my family, I'd be just so devastated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know where that where that stems from. Like there could be a correlation between abandonment issues and people pleasing. I'm pretty sure that's provable in psychology Mm. but i don't know i think it's a combination of things but especially now that i'm sober i just just feel like i can like whatever life throws at me is i'm gonna be okay so so it's interesting you just talked into that because some of the um like i'm just deep into you know the research into psychology and everything else you know i haven't gone a diploma or anything like that but just reading as much as i can and what i'm reading at the moment is about levels of consciousness and the use of kinesiology and then mapping a you know kinesiology into levels of those consciousness Mm. and what you've just talked about there which is a bit about you know if everything burnt down and everything's like like i'm still going to be okay i'm still going to survive i'm going to be good there's a line that they talk about between power and force and and force is you know measured at anything which is effectively a number of 200 or below you know so depression shame guilt fear um anger all that sort of sits below this line of 200 which is like in the, in the level of force and, and it's sort of like a whole lot of negativity when you sit above that 200 and it's like 10 to the power of right so if you're at 150 and you're at 300 it's not twice it's like you know anyone that knows mass 10 to the power of 150 versus 10 to the power of 300 is exponentially larger mm. so if you're sitting in a viewpoint of you know what i think i'll be okay i think i'm going to be survive i think i'm going to be pretty good i'm actually looking outside of me i'm no longer worried about how the world's impacting me but i'm actually worried about how the world's impacting others is actually in the area of power that means you're, you're empowered and you're taking all your power back which is such an awesome spot to be in mm. because that means that you, you you're actually getting closer and closer so uh in relation to the scale of naught to a thousand like jesus krishna buddha sit at a thousand right totally enlightened um you know and, and so they're seen as divinity and then at the very bottom is you know shame which is pretty much uh you know uh even below levels of suicide just people who just don't want to be here at all Mm. and they're very just you know um i suppose closed in on this this horrible world the world's just terrible and horrible and so getting to this realization where you're getting to from a consciousness consciousness point of view is actually a really powerful step to get to because it means that you're no longer fearing what the world could do to you. You're actually comfortable and confident. You know, I'm going to be okay. Maybe, maybe also dude, it could be because like people that go through phases of addiction and destruction that like, it puts you on the path of self actualization because you're not in hell anymore. If you create hell for yourself and you're in a really bad place and you're the one that, crawls out of that place out of that darkness that you're in you just have this feeling of resilience that yeah that you're gonna be able to do it mm. that it can't be as bad as it was before so if i have a shit day today for whatever reason i could be like oh well at least i'm not you know drinking for five days straight anymore with three hours sleep a night Mm, and destroying yep. myself that way that 
or the saying that like destruction is a form of creation. So if I look back on all of that destruction, well, it's created something good now. So yeah. maybe it was like meant to be. And somehow when I got the last time I went to the doctors for like a blood test and a general checkup was not too long after being sober. And she said for my age and weight and height and all that, like I was essentially in perfect health. So I ran around being a smart ass to everyone telling him that the fountain of youth is to just take as many drugs as you can <laughs> and drink as much as you can. Cause you're going to be all right anyway, which obviously isn't backed by any kind of science or biology, no. but I just got lucky, man. Like yeah. even the, a lot of the dudes that I used to work with that were all like crazy drinkers and partied harder than still to this day, anyone that I've ever seen, they'd be like, I don't know how you haven't died in Bali, man. Or I don't know how one of them didn't die. Like 28 trips. And then a few of them were like bigger ones because I was on annual leave, but you generally just go there for a week at a time. Hmm. And yeah, I don't know how, like, I don't know how the Grim Reaper didn't get me, honestly. Well, I, I think, you know, so let's go back to a point that you sort of raised earlier, which is a bit about, you know, why didn't the Grim Reaper get you? Well, maybe because you needed, there was a message that you still had to get, which came from Pat, your dad. Yeah. You know, basically from, you know, like you couldn't go yet, right? Because you hadn't got that message and you had gone through that profound experience of, fuck, like, Look what happened to him. Like, mm. am I, am I, you know, when I look in, in, into that situation, like, you know, you're saying in the hospital bed going, fuck, is that my future? Yeah. Like, like, like in somewhere, is it this, is this going to be my kids looking at me overweight, liver failure? Yeah. You know, people coming saying, see you later, like, you know, yeah. we know you're about to die. Like, or do I go, fuck, no, like, and is that the message you're meant to receive? And now you're on this path where you can mm. say, right, I can actually not only help change my life, but maybe I can help change others along this path well, and that profound lifting of experience. Exactly. Yeah. Well, like, um, I, th- I think it was in my bio that I said, you know, it's had a rippled effect sobriety. That was never my intention. But mm. you realize that instead of like, if, if you give up the grog and you used to be a heavy drinker that, like you rope thing people into doing things that are positive, like you bought and then you grab someone to go for a walk or something, mm. whereas you used to be dragging them by the hair to the pub. Yeah. And then stuff like that. Is, and, and yeah, I didn't know, I didn't plan for that happening, but it's almost as if like that by you making those improvements in yourself or feeling like that you're ripping at life, it's almost infectious i I, well it's it is these books of consciousness will actually say absolutely it is statistically proven that it is infectious Mm. because you are emanating out a different level of energy into the level of consciousness and so what you're putting out is now coming back yeah and but it's not pretentious or wanky no saying no because it's literally like with my little brother for some reason he didn't get like any dad's genetics with drinking he can't drink to save his life so for him and my twin sister, nearly every time that I drank with them, they'd spew their guts up. Yeah. So now instead of dragging him to the pub, we're going to the gym together or yeah. we went to a um, recovery place the other day and did like the hot and cold baths and the wet sauna and 
we're yeah. broing down in <laughs> healthy ways. No, but, but, but yeah. If if you had told me that I was going to quit drinking at age 30, I probably, if I was 27, I probably would have told you to get fucked. That there was no scenario that I could think of yep. where that was going to happen. But I think maybe the fact that it was so spontaneous or that dad's death was so abrupt even though i was prepared for it for years i was under no illusions about his health Mm. but yeah that the unplannedness of everything that happened worked in my favor maybe yeah yeah no and and i i I feel it has you know like i i've more and more, and I, I look, you know, to the point where you're saying, like, at 27, would you have given up drinking 30? At the age of 50, would I be sitting here doing a podcast and talking about consciousness? Like, fuck off. Like, no, I was the biggest exactly. cynic on earth. Like, you know, people talk about clairvoyance. I'm like, yeah, like, fairy, fairy, woo-woo and everything else. Right? But through my own profound experience, and we, and I think that's what happens. Like, we have these different profound experiences. We, you know, we, we have a situation where we have to face death or people dying and everything else. All of a sudden, you go, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe I can open myself up here. I can actually come from a different viewpoint. I can start coming, you know, seeing things from a different angle. Um, mm. There was a professor when I went back to to school many many years ago, and I again, th- these interesting things that happen along your pathway. I don't know why this guy in one of our lectures stood up and he talked about alcoholism, and he talked about what happens is the fact that. Um, people will actually attract themselves to other people who are going to drink. They'll find easy targets. So if you're an alcoholic, you're, you're, the people you're going to hang out with are those people that you know are going to have a drink. Mm. Now, they may not be alcoholics themselves, but they're willing to have a bit of a drink with you and you end up creating this, this group. Sure, sure. They're, not, they're not your friends, right? They, they're just a group of people who are happy to go and yeah, actually get a binge with, right? And now all of a sudden when you change that, the one thing I struggled initially was my best mate. Like we were a slab each, like we would turn up. I had my slab, he'd have a slab and we'd just have a good crack at it. And most times it'd be 15 to 20 hands of a night time, right? Mm. Now that's, that's you know, that, that's a good crack. Now, as soon as I stopped drinking, like for three or four years after, he goes, so when are we having a beer again? I'm like, mate, I don't drink anymore. He really, really struggled with that because you, our whole relationship was around the alcohol. Yeah. We've, we've changed now, which is brilliant. But yeah. like. So I do you feel like that um, by by – stopping drinking that you lost a few friends oh heaps of friends yeah like well sorry i i no longer remained in contact with those people i used to drink with let me put it that way because they were never my friends yeah and i think that's the key thing about it is that and even now like even now at the moment because i'm standing pretty true in what is my truth about what's happening in the world at the moment like i'm even losing like people are now refusing not to deal with me now Mm. And and I'm talking even family, like there is family members who are now choosing not to actually have conversations with me and accusing me of certain things mm. because I now have an alternate view time, viewpoint, right? Mm. But I think once you stand in your truth, stand in your truth, and those people who are in alignment, like you, you just talked about, you know, like the group of eclectic people that you now hang out with, right? Yeah, you know, the combination of the, the weird one and the black sheep and all these sorts of things, right? But But – there's just this group of people who are trying to find their tribe and ultimately they've gone, ah, oh, we didn't realize that's what the tribe was, but now we're actually coming together because we have this common viewpoint about what our tribe is. Yeah. And they all fully own the things that are wrong with them and talk yes. about openly, which I think is 
it's just so funny and it's so refreshing because everyone tries to hide their flaws. Mm. Whereas if you reach the point where you just don't really give a toss anymore about what people think, then it makes, I feel like it makes them like you more almost. Yes. That if you're an open book, you talk about all the bad things that have happened to you before. Most people seem to be really cool about that for some reason. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Honestly, like those people, they feel, find you refreshing, right? Because there's 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 no mask. They're, you are what you are. You're a genuine, and, and I think people pick up on that genuineness. You know, like they they want to chat to you because they go, "Cool, I don't have to pretend anymore. I can just yeah. be who I am." And you're not going to judge me. You're going to laugh with me, but you're not going to judge me, and that's a really cool thing to do. Yeah, and that's and that's regardless of whether or not they like you. If yeah. you're not out to um, impress people you know i've always been a bit of a a larrikin i would say and especially alcohol seems to exaggerate those traits but um yeah now i feel like i'm still the same person for sure and um yeah i lost some mates by going sober but i was lucky with everyone that i worked with in darwin they're literally like family they weren't Mm friends we spent two-thirds of the um year together at work yep so they're all like brothers to me um and regardless of if i'm sober or not you know if i ever go back to darwin i'd still catch up with all of them yeah even if i just tag along and you know watch and be idiots at the pub like i'd happily do that yeah because they yeah. are yeah but yeah i lost some a lot of half friends I would say or a lot of people that just only knew me as somebody that liked drinking yep. um, yeah and then people stopped snap snapchatting me their um their drug use and all of that stuff that I used to find funny because I realized that I don't sort of really find <laughs> it that, that interesting <laughs> anymore or maybe I get jealous or I don't yep. know but there was a lot of like really profound changes like that that I didn't expect but Mainly I just sort of keep to myself and do my own thing and everybody else is a bonus. Like Hmm. it's not that I don't need anyone, you know, as support or to get through life, but I'm stoked with who I am now. So at the same time, I think I don't really need anybody else. And it doesn't mean that I want everybody that I know and love to evaporate, but if they did, I know that I'll still be all good somehow. That what you've just spoken into there is ultimately the true essence of masculinity, which is if everything went to the shit, deep down I know I'm going to be okay. Mm. And and that that that's a complete removement of attachment. It's a complete removement of codependence. And you know, that's that's for me, that's such a beautiful thing for you to get to in, mm. in the point that, you know, um, if it all went to the shit. Things just all disappeared. And, and like I'm similar. Like, you know, I love Jackie and I love Talia and Zach and I love my family and everything else. But if the whole thing went to the shit, deep down I know I will be okay. Mm. I'll be sad. I'll be angry. I'll be frustrated. I'll, all those emotions will take place, but I'll be okay because mm. I know who I am in my own true essence. And and I think that's where we just want people to be able to get to, you know. Dude, yeah, exactly. And 
I feel like too, like um, with dad, he would have wanted me to just, you know, keep on keeping on, that he wouldn't have wanted my mental health to decline because of him. But uh, the the best and worst thing about me being sober, I guess, is that, and the fact that like he's gone, but he that's something that he could never do was like give up the grog properly. I know that like especially mum's proud of me but maybe out of everyone that I know he would have been the most proud but I can't tell him so you know um I feel that you can mm. in but not not in the in the humanistic world of which we're used to yeah um I I've moved to a practice that every night I talk to ancestors and spirits. Like I literally say, hey, ancestors and spirits. I use that terminology every night as I'm going to sleep. Mm. One of those people is Pat, your dad. Yeah. Like he is one of those people that I talk to on a mm. nightly basis mm-hmm. and ask for guidance and ask for, you know, blessing. And then when I wake up every morning, I, you know, again, I thank for the fact that I've got another chance to spend time on this earth. Mm. Um just to, I don't know whether we've spoken about this, well, we probably haven't, but when I had my transformation at a breathwork experience in November 2019, so nearly two years ago, I went through three stages. Uh, stage one was just wanting to die. Mm. Literally, I'm like, heart shut down. I'm all good. Like, shut me down. Like, I'm out. Don't mm. care if I die today. I'm all good. The next path was grieving, and I was just really upset. Um, in the middle of grieving, two people appeared to me, like literally appeared to me. Your dad was one of them, Pat, mm. and his dad. So, um, so basically, yeah, uh, Jack Goonan also appeared, and your dad said to me, "You're going to be okay. Mm. I've got you. I'm always here for you." And I'm like, I never forget that. And mm. so, for me, that's that was my. He had passed away at that stage, but at that point in time, like, funnily, my dad never turned up at all, mm. but, but he had turned up and just literally spoke to me about the fact that it's going to be okay and. I just now know he's there. Like I, I, you know, he, he appears every now and then as a, as a presence. Um, and I'm sure he does the same thing for you. Um, so. Well, the last time, which was like, I guess one of the best and worst days of my life because of the feeling that I got from him. But um, when Mars, my niece was born. So she was born in December and he passed away in August. So mm. like, the the three nights after he passed away, I was getting the feeling that he was still around, which is indescribable. Um, and then just fast forward and then it was the day that she was born. Because I think I was maybe I just created that on my own accord, but I was picking up on something different. So whether or not that was my intuition or that I was just thinking about him while holding her or whatever that, that he was missing out and I wasn't, but yeah, that had me rocked. And I didn't, I didn't even talk to Bridie about it. My twin, I didn't really mention it to anyone, but it was just a really, yeah. Unexpected feeling. I would say. Mm. Uh, I, I, I believe that, you know, he, he was there. And as I said, I, you know, the, the, the connection I had with your dad, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, right. He, 
he did a lot of bad things and a lot of wrong things, right? So I, he's he, my, he's never been a saint in my eyes, and that's I think what my my mum and dad always struggle with. That I saw him on a pedestal as this saintly guy, right? Mm. I just never judged him. I knew he wasn't perfect, and I did. I knew he did some really wrong things yeah. through his life, right? Yeah. So he's definitely not the guy that you're going to put up as you know the next pope. That's for sure. Mm. Um, but. I there was more than just him being an uncle. There was a different connection that yeah. that I had with him, and I still believe that I have that I maintain that connection today. Um, and you know, and the fact that you've spoken about, you know, when you're holding your niece mm. and you, you felt that presence, then yeah, I strongly believe that that's still there. And if you're open to it, then I think he will continue to be a guide in your life moving forward. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, there were times where, like, I thought about, well, just at least thought about, like, relapsing or, like, there's been one New Year's where I'm like, oh, do I get an MDMA cap or do I just take one pill and then do nothing until next year? And any time that I thought about relapsing, one of the things that helped, which is pretty, some people might think it's a bit messed up, but I took a couple photos of him when he was, when he was passed away in bed. So I've got like a little folder on my phone of like a couple photos of him like before he passed away when he was alive and then a couple of him laying in bed. And then it's like a constant reminder of what could happen if I start drinking again because people will say, oh, now that you have control over it and um, why don't you just have a couple every now and again? And I'm like, I never wanted to do that before. So why would I want to do it now? I know mm. that I'd try and drink a whole slab, dead set. Like, and yeah, I have alcohol cravings right now. I've been sober for more than two years, but I'm fully prepared to be having those cravings until the day I die. I'll yep. always love the taste and smell of beer. Um, and I do get f- fractionally jealous of people that when they're drinking around me, but I know I get to wake up the next day and feel amazing or, you know, there's yeah, pros yeah. and cons. That's why I don't give a shit if people drink or not. But harm minimization is, is something that I would just recommend to people. And it's even in our national drug s- strategy yeah. and backed by a lot of science, like whatever you're drinking now, just drink less and see how you feel. Mm. It might help you transition into going, Oh, well, I used to spend my weekends partying, but I'm just not going to anymore. Yeah. Uh, so um, to, to, <laughs> I, I haven't drank. So when I get to New Year's this, this year, it'd be 19 years since I haven't had a drink. Mm. Do I still want to drink? Fuck yes. Would I love to have a beautiful red wine? Oh, shit, yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, like Oh, thanks, like, man. <laughs> like, like for, so, so sorry, this, this path is It doesn't get man. better. It doesn't like, get any easier. What people don't understand is that every single day I choose not to drink. Every single day. It's not you get to the point where you just don't drink. Like every two, but it's no different. Every single day I choose not to have soft drink. Like I choose now sparkling water and water and kombucha. Right. I I actively now choose what I'm actually going to put into my body. Yeah. But in that choice, I'm actually choosing not to have other soft drinks, not to have other artificial stuff, not to have alcohol. Like it's not like everything we do is a choice. Just because you're 19 years sober doesn't mean that like like the alcohol is in a house. Like Zach lives with this. He's got beer in the fridge. Mm. Like 
Jackie's recently giving up drinking. She did a cleanse, but she's looking not to go back to drink. Like, but mm. I would go to the bottle shop and buy her a bottle of wine. Like literally I had a choice. I could open that and drink it or I could get home and drink it or I go, I don't drink. It's like just, it's easier. So don't get me wrong. Like it's much easier. Like because it's just so not part of my lifestyle anymore that I don't have any interest. And, you know, if I do go out, like a, when you used to do work events, you know, you get to nine o'clock at night, I'd call it spitting hour because it's that point of time where the people you're talking to have had enough to drink that they're actually right in your face and there's a saliva just coming out of the mouth hitting you on your, on your glasses and you go, okay, I'm about to go home now, right? You guys are going to have a great night, but you're yelling at me and you're spitting on me, you know, um, it's time to head off. But yeah, I think there's a choice that we just, we make and whatever we use initially as the driver, like mine was the kids. I didn't want that to be the kids to see what was happening in my life. I didn't want that to be part of their life. You know, we still got a photo, which is, I thought was funny is both kids, one's holding a Bundy can, the other one's holding a beer, like at the ages of like 18 months and three or four. I'm mm. like, that's not what I want my kids growing up like that. And so, so that, that, yeah, it's cultural conditioning though. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Like, yeah. That we've, we've accepted that as something that is funny. I had a mate, um, he told me over the phone that his dad had worked out that he'd had a beer every day, at least one beer or more every day for the last 30 years. And I said, oh, dude, like, that's pretty rough. Like, that's gnarly. And he goes, what, why? And I'm like, well, you know, that's that's an alco. And then, yeah, he did the, the usual Aussie thing of, oh, no, nah, just dad loves a beer. But why do we not agree that that's, addiction if you like somebody that goes to the gym every day is addicted to going to the gym i'm addicted to coffee i'll have two or three coffees a day i'm well aware of that everybody is addicted to something or multiple things all at once but with alcohol people just refuse to believe that it's addictive even though it's designed chemically as a product to make you addicted that's that's why everybody is yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty simple it, it is and, and the thing about that is just it's actually okay like the difference between um i suppose accountability and not accountability is going no no no. I, i'll have a beer a day but i'm not addicted go i have an addiction and my addiction is having a beer every day mm. own it talk to it accept it i don't you don't have to stop it but just accept it for what it is and then it's okay. Like, and then just think about, is that having an impact? Like what's that message sending out? But if you're comfortable with that, go for it. Don't care. But well, at least own it. I think you don't have a choice as to whether or not it's having an impact because it's having an impact on your biology. And mm-hmm. I think if you're a, a heavy drinker, it has an impact on every person in your life. And I know the more research that we get about alcohol and especially the effects on the brain or the link, the direct link to whatever it is, the seven or eight different cancers. Like people need to, to wake up to that. And I, I think in here in the UK, we keep reducing the, um, not that alcohol in any amount is recommended by any physicians, but we keep reducing the amount of units of alcohol per week that you're allowed to have. And then after that, you're really adversely affecting your body. And when you find out what those units are, it's so much less than what people think. Yeah. 
and they and they put up all these pseudo scientific bullshit articles by the alcohol companies to be like, oh, a glass or two of wine every day makes you live longer. No, it doesn't. <laughs> alcohol does not do that to you. That's right. It yes. doesn't. It's. Yeah. It's when they roll out that ninety-five-year-old, like ninety-five. What's the secret to your life? I have a whiskey every day because yeah. like, alcohol is good for it. It's like, come on, dude! Like he's got there's a whole lot of this shit in his life that's probably happening than than the mainstream people. Yeah, it's more holistic than that. That <laughs> <laughs> they never exercised, had no friends, or what they did was sit inside all day and drink, mm. and they lived till their nineties. No, that doesn't yeah. happen. All those know, people are really rare that they've like defied your bodily systems and just they've hit the biological lottery or something. Mm, or, or right. People tell me now like, oh, what's the point in giving up drinking and, yeah, I might um, die from it later on in life, but you could get hit by a bus today. And I'm like, yes, dickhead, I know that I could die <laughs> for a variety of reasons, but what if I live until I'm 88, like independently, and then have a heart attack and then from age 30 to 88, I feel healthy and they drink their whole lives and the days where they feel healthy are so few and far between that they live a life of suffering. Mm. Like think about that as a concept. You should be able to like realise that whatever that you can do to be healthy now, especially when you're younger, um, is going to affect you later on in life and you might be adding years onto your life. I read a stat the other day about um, this doctor was measuring people that went from not like not walking at all to incorporating 75 minutes plus of walking into their um, weekly schedule. And he was predicting that they could live for like two years longer just by Mm -hmm. doing that. Like if you can walk for an extra 15 or 20 minutes a day, you could live longer. So yeah. why wouldn't you be trying to do shit like that? I don't I understand. Uh, I think part of the conditioning of, of the world at the moment is an acceptance of mediocrity and illness. Like we outsource everything. You know, someone has a headache, I've got to go off and get Panadol. Someone has this, you know. Um, this, is, this is a world that we've now been so um, I don't know, conditioned into. Like, hmm. you know, illness is actually an acceptable fact. I mean, you look at all the statistics that are out with, if you just look at this last 18 months of, you know, what has taken place globally in the last 18 months and some of the decisions that have been made, we know that alcohol is a killer. Hmm. We know that smoking is a killer. But full access to both of those services in the last 18 months, we know that sun gives you life, human connection gives you life. We know that. Uh, kids actually playing amongst each other actually builds yeah. a unity system, not only for those kids, but their families they go back to. Yeah. These are all the things that are actually truth. Yeah, we've, we've actually allowed two things to kill us and we've removed the things that are actually going to save us yeah. in the last 18 months, all on the, on the uh, name of science and in the best interest of our health. And it's like, you can all fuck off. That is oh, just... Dude, well- I mean, I know that, I know that we could go probably another hour, but like I'm just like people, and but the problem is, so many people, eighty five percent of the population, disagree with those statements, mm. and and that scares the daylights out of me. I think everybody knows what they need to do 
um, to be healthy, um, but they just choose not to make those steps because that is the hardest thing to do. Mm. Like diet and exercise, uh, well, not diet, I mean nutrition and exercise or like could be the remedies for nearly all of the things that we're suffering from. But I think that they're the hardest to be disciplined about that the easiest option is to just um, rely on medical professionals to heal you through medications, which they do wonders for a lot of people. But I think like the majority of people, they're just masking their, their symptoms. Whereas, you know, like people that live with persistent pain, they obviously need pain medications, but at the same time, if that's their only way of dealing with the pain, well, they're not addressing all of their problems mm. holistically and it's going to keep them sick. You're not meant to be on that shit for your whole life. But people aren't afraid of pharmaceuticals. I think it's like 80% of our pharmaceutical deaths are accidental. So yeah. where are those warnings on the on the telly? Because um, that's, right. that's frightening. I mean, ever, well, I gave up drinking, but I also gave up um, pharmaceuticals because I used to have a problem with those as well. So like literally the only drug that I have in my system now is, is caffeine. Yep. Um, and it's bloody hard to do. Like it is, it's the most difficult th- thing for me to do is to just cut out everything. Like I haven't even had a puff of a joint. Like, yeah. and people don't want to hear it. If they're like, oh, how did you like get fit and healthy, um, you know, after you stopped drinking? If I said to them that I was, running from Southport to Nobby's Beach Surf Club and back, which was 22.6 kilometres, like six days a week. They'll go, I'm not doing that, (laughs) Um, which is obvious, but you can do, just do something. Like, yeah, walk every day or, you know, we're just too too sedentary. I think that, yeah, movement, movement and nutrition. It will be the main things that will protect you from most um diseases and inflammation um and then yeah that's a huge debate with with covid that we probably shouldn't go into because we, 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 that'd be another episode but you've been generous with your time um i know we've sort of been sort of chatting for well, over an hour now and it's been fantastic i've just loved having this conversation and it's been a while since you and i've had a chance to sit down and, and actually chat um exactly. we certainly need to do this outside of uh, the podcast forum yeah. Um, one other thing I like to do with the guests I have on is um, just uh, a message, you know, so, you know, this is mainly targeted at men who, you know, like yourself and myself who've had some challenges in life and, you know, used, you know, drugs or alcohol or whatever is escapism tools and now we're looking to live, you know, this, this freer, more um, accountable sort of lifestyle. So, you know, what would be a parting message that you might want to leave, um, you know, the men or the women that got men in their life that they could look to do? I would say to just look into the the unaddressed parts of your psyche. Do your shadow work. Um, look internally. Like I, I strongly believe that everybody knows what they need to do. They're just choosing not to do it. So all of the hard things that you can think of, there that's your task Mm. go and try and do one of those things um if it is drinking less whatever it doesn't matter you know what you need to do um 
And if you can't do it, I would just encourage help-seeking behaviour. So reach out to mental health services and hotlines. Talk to your family and friends. Um, ask for help. If you don't want to do it alone, you don't have to. Um, there's heaps of people that you don't even know exist that are, that are willing to help. So, yeah, just do whatever you can to, um, to discover what those things are. Try and be healthy. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> all of this all of the um stereotypes but yeah do your shadow work look inside try not to worry too much about external influences and um yeah reach out if you need help beautiful thanks tom um that that's such an awesome message so i really appreciate you leaving with that because uh, i couldn't agree any more on that um so i'm gonna let you go um uh, enjoy the the rest of um your day um it's probably a bit warmer where you are than where we are down here oh yeah i'm in a singlet i'm in a singlet and i'm looking out my bedroom window there's no clouds it's perfectly sunny um not not to rub in (laughs) um i'm in a a woolly hoodie and i'm looking out and it's been pissing with rain and it's cold (laughs) it's uh i just checked for you it's 24 degrees here on the gold coast (laughs) and it's perfectly sunny so (laughs) i might go for a walk along the beach or something to rub salt into your wounds that, that, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Oh, I'll just on a different note. Um, we've actually secured a house down at Ocean Grove, down at the beach. So uh, in two weeks, we're physically moving down to a, a beach location. So it may not be as warm as the Gold Coast, but at least we'll have access to uh, beach and sand, and you know, be able to continue this uh, yeah. this healthy life. So it'll be good. Yeah, we'll take your shoes off. That's another uh, free health message. Um, I know hi- I've, hippies have claimed it as grounding or earthing or some bullshit, but. Like putting synthetic rubber on our feet is something that we've just done recently, like decades ago as a species. And I refer to shoes as foot coffins, actually, because I think that they are making people sick. So if you're at the beach, don't wear shoes. Um, <laughs> it's one of my pet hates. But, yeah, I go for walks there. barefoot. I agree. And those hippies out there is actually, it's the grounding of actually connecting your energetic space to the, to the earth's energy and you can actually get rid of all your, your negative energy and actually use the. Yeah. The, there's, you know, it's stuff. But you, you're scientific. Yeah. 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 But, but I do like the fact that, that yeah, the hippies come up with it first. <laughs> yeah. It's ancient. I love all the, yeah. the new knowledge that we've allegedly created that's based on ancient knowledge that's thousands of years old even with like organic food and plant-based diets and stuff it's like yeah we already figured that out yoga like meditation all of that it's not new edge stuff we're going we're reverting back to old ways and it's making us healthier who would have thought yeah exactly right no i fully agree thanks man it's been great chatting uh enjoy the rest of the day and uh, we'll definitely be in touch very soon take care buddy yeah cheers dude see ya Hey folks, so it was a great chat to uh, catch up with with Tom. Um, it's probably been, you know, we've texted here and there, but uh, yeah, probably the last time we had this chance to have this chat was uh, unfortunately yeah, when Pat passed away. Um, so definitely once we all get out of lockdowns and everything else, I know we're looking to get up the Gold Coast, so it'd be good to catch up with Tom face to face and reconnect. So uh, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this chat um, that we had with Tom. There's some really great nuggets in there about how you can turn your life around, doesn't matter what age you are, and you know the benefits of doing so. 
So definitely jump on. Um, If you're looking for me, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So that's it for episode 43 of the Unearthed Man podcast. Sending you much love and care. Love you.